just in case you're visiting on a whim, um, welcome. We are currently doing a series called Sex and Gender in the Image of God. Um, normally on Sunday nights, we do a Through the Bible series, series where we work through the Bible a couple of chapters a time every week, but because of the importance uh, and the depth of this series, we wanted to take seven weeks, repeat the sermon in the evening, as well as do a question and answer time after the service. So in fact, if you have questions during the series, uh, there will be a a number right there you can see at the top of the screen. Feel free to text in your questions uh, or you can wait until we get to that time and you can text in then as well. Um, let's see. I want to do two quick things before we get into the study tonight. Um, the, the first one is I want to just reiterate again or if you're joining us for the first time, nail down what this series is. Uh, the goal of this series is really not so much about the what of a traditional Christian sexual ethic as it is the why. We're trying to look at the foundation and answer the big questions like, why did God create sexuality and gender, uh, and what purpose are they to serve? We're going to do that consistently by looking at the what, but for the most part, we'll be looking through the passages. So, for example, last week, if you didn't join us, we looked at uh, Jesus' teachings on, uh, on marriage in the Gospel of Matthew, but not really to talk about what marriage is, but to talk about how Jesus thinks about things like sex and gender. And what we saw is that it fits in broadly four categories. There's four aspects to the story the Bible tells, which are creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And we saw that Jesus answers the questions, what is marriage? How does it operate? How should you think about it? By touching in all four of those areas. Um, to summarize those four areas, effectively, this is what we learn. When we look at the, the uh, fact that God created the world and called it good, and that includes both our gender and our sexuality, we learn that there is intention behind these things. In other words, there's design. And so that's one thing we need to consider in this topic. But when we bring in the fall, what we recognize is that the world is not as it was created. Because of the reality of sin and human rebellion, the world we live in is fallen. And so what was by design is also now to a degree distorted uh, in the way that it plays out in our lives, in the way that we think about it, in the way that our bodies operate in this reality, as well as our world and the people we interact with. Um, but redemption brings us forward, and it reminds us that Jesus came to set those things right, to restore what was broken, to redeem what was lost, and to rebuild what had crumbled. And so redemption reminds us that, uh, that there is deliverance in the midst of these things, that we don't have to just look around and say, this is the world as it is, this is me as I am, and it's not going to get any better than this. The Bible says that what Jesus came to do and accomplished in his life and his death on the cross profoundly impacts our lives as human beings, and that includes sex and gender. And then finally, consummation is this recognition that what has began in Jesus Christ will one day be finished. Uh, and so what this points us to is, is destiny, that all of these things have a forward trajectory. If we're to understand them, they look beyond themselves to something else. 
okay? Which also, side note, means that these things aren't ultimate. They're penultimate, okay? But they're still significant, both because they correlate with the way God designed us and because they demonstrate the relationship God wants to have with his people, okay? This was all built around last week and will continue to be every week this concept of the image of God. That in the book of Genesis, what sets man and woman apart from the rest of creation is that they were created in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. He created them both in the image of God, as it says in Genesis 1.27. And this idea of the image of God is both that there is in some way that we are like God and then we are called to represent him. And so that means that this sexual ethic, like all ethics from a Christian perspective, are inherently symbolic. Okay? They're built on the foundation of who God is and built to be a lens that demonstrates who God is. Okay? Now what we're going to do for the next few weeks, three in particular, is we're going to talk about three facets of the sexual relationship according to the Bible. And these are not clever ideas that I've come up with. They're incredibly common uh, Christian lenses to view sexuality through. All of them we can see pretty clearly in Genesis chapter 2. But like I said, there's nothing new or novel in this approach of looking to these three. If you were to read in Augustine, writing in the fourth century, he would mention these three things. Uh, if, If you were to read from an evangelical perspective, like this church is, from a commentator like John Stott, he'll mention these three things. If you read Peter Kreeft, who's a Catholic apologist, he'll mention these three things. If you read Lisa Sowell Cahill, who is an ethics professor at a college in Boston, she'll mention these three things. In fact, in fact, if you turn to Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, we'll see that even Malachi, reflecting backward from the perspective of a prophet to Israel, references these three things. I guess before we read, I might as well tell you what they are, okay? It's that there is an aspect of our sexuality as human beings that is erotic. There's an aspect of our sexuality as human beings that is unitive, meaning that the two become one, and that there's an aspect of our sexuality that is procreative, Okay, so notice as Malachi is talking here, he's criticizing uh, a time in Israel's history where they're complaining about God's treatment of them and they're completely incapable of seeing the reasons for God's treatment of them. Okay, and so they're going, why is God not responding to our sacrifices and offerings? And Malachi goes, you want to know? I'll tell you why. And so he says here in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, Sorry, like many of you, this is not a book that I turn to very often. Okay, Malachi chapter 2, verse 14. Um, And so they're complaining that he no longer regards their offerings. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That's the unitive aspect. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? That's the erotic aspect, as we'll see tonight. And then notice what it says next. And what was, uh, what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. That's the third one, procreative aspect, Okay. Now, as we take the next three weeks to look at each one of these individually, we're actually going to expand them a little bit, okay? Uh, And the reason is because, and I don't know if this is due to usage and culture um, or or just just a narrowing 
of the concept. But for example, when I say erotic, we have a tendency to shrink that way down to smaller what these authors, uh, what, the, what the biblical authors actually meant. And so tonight we're going to talk about embodied sexuality, which includes but expands beyond, goes beyond um, erotic as we normally think of it. Next week, instead of merely talking about the unitive uh, or the intimate aspect of sexuality, we're actually going to talk about relational sexuality. And then finally, instead of merely talking about procreation, we're going to talk about how that sexuality as design points outside of itself to what, what we'll call social sexuality. Okay? But that's what we're going to do for the next three weeks. Okay? So tonight, with embodied sexuality, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is writing to a church that he started in Corinth, and this letter is uh, one of multi- uh, multiple back and forth correspondence between the church of Corinth. We only have two of these letters, both written by Paul to the church of Corinth, but in the midst of them, he mentions at least two more letters that he's written and at least two more letters that they've written, even though we don't have them, okay? And so what we're picking up on here is a section where Paul is regarding or speaking to some issues going on in the church that need to be addressed, Specifically, what he's going to talk about tonight is prostitution, but as will be the case week to week, we're not really going to talk about prostitution. What's striking in this passage uh, is not merely that the Corinthian church was trying to defend the practice for them as Christians to go and frequent prostitutes, but how Paul responds to them, because in doing so, Like every other passage we're going to look at, like when we turn to Malachi, it goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and says, if we're going to understand these things and how they are to be um, morally boundaried, then we have to understand the design according to Genesis chapter 2. And he feels the need to bring up that design in the context of prostitution. As you'll see in a second, it's relatively striking. The other thing I want you to keep in mind as we read um, is, is the body language, uh, not Paul's body language as he writes, but the language using metaphors, pictures, and literally the word body that flows through this passage. Whatever sexuality means in, in the sense that Paul wants to address in this passage has something to do with embodiment. And so watch for those flags as we read. Let's go ahead and read the passage through. We'll pick up in chapter 6, verse 13. We'll go through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, quote, the two will become one flesh, end quote. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God 
in your body. Let's pray. God, none of us comes to this text tonight without perspective. Perspective shaped by experience, by personal understanding, by culture, uh, by the influences that have impacted us, by our own predispositions to sin, by our own fallen hearts. All of these things come in and become the lens through which we view the scripture. And so we pray for the help of your spirit as promised to cut through the misunderstandings that we may have in our initial reading and make clear embodied sexuality as it was designed. I pray that you would speak to us through your word through your spirit, in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Flannery O'Connor was an author of short stories. Her life was cut relatively short, literarily, because she died at the age of 32 of lupus. So she wrote two novels, two collections of short stories. That's all we, all we have. Nonetheless, she is praised as being one of the great American short story authors. She was Catholic and grew up in the South, and tended to write about what she called severe grace. That's not the right term. I don't remember what she called it, but that gets us in the right direction. What happens inevitably in all of her books is that somebody, usually a self-righteous, most likely Protestant person, encounters divine grace in a profoundly life-changing way and either receives it or walks away from it. Her books and her stories are grotesque. Some of the titles I would not feel comfortable sharing with you tonight. The one I wanted to point you, though, tonight uh, is called The Temple of the Holy Ghost, and it's named for the passage that we're reading tonight. It's about a 10-year-old girl who, in the, in the story, is the perspective of the story but remains unnamed. And this 10-year-old girl is being visited by two of her older teenage cousins, both girls attending a convent uh, for school, but effectively home for the weekend with family. And the girls come into the story referring to themselves as Temple One and Temple Two with a good deal of giggling. And the 10-year-old discovers that's because one of the sisters at the convent had told them, if any guy gets fresh with you in the back of a car, I want you to just stop him and say, stop, for I am a temple of the Holy Ghost, with the which the girls think are relatively hilarious. Um, with them being away from the convent, the, the narrator tells us that they are kind of all dolled up and looking for fun. In fact, the only thing the mother of this young girl can think to do with them is to find two local boys to take them out to a fair that's passing through town. Now, the 10-year-old girl is kind of negative. She's relatively arrogant, and she's not sure what she thinks of them uh, or their ethics, um, but she's only 10. And so, while they're at the fair being entertained by these two boys, she's laying in bed dreaming of martyrdom, thinking, boy, it'd be awesome to be a martyr, and I think I could do it, as long as they kill me quickly. And so she's got these aspirations, and then the girls come home in the dark, and she asks them how the fair was, uh, and they explain that while they were there, they saw a sideshow that included a person who in the story is labeled a hermaphrodite, what we would now say is an intersex person, somebody who manifests both sets of genitalia. And they explained to the girl that the hermaphrodite uh, exposed themselves to the audience and said, don't you laugh, God made me this way, and if you laugh, he might make you this way too. 
Now, honestly, the 10-year-old girl has no idea what they're talking about, but she falls asleep and dreams of this hermaphrodite preaching in her church and saying, God made me this way, and all the people in the audience say, amen, amen, and saying, I am a temple of the Holy Ghost, and them saying, amen, amen. In the morning, she wakes up, and she heads with her family to Mass. Now, Mass is the Catholic celebration of communion, and it's unique You have to understand this. It's unique in a Catholic perspective from a Protestant one because of the concept we call transubstantiation, which means that when the host, the bread, is sanctified, it actually becomes the body of Christ. And so she goes in a relatively negative and arrogant mood, and then she has this encounter with the Eucharist, with this communion service, with the Mass, and it changes her perspective. And as she's driving home, and this is how the story ends, the sun is setting, and it looks to her like, quote, a blood-drenched piece of the host being elevated by the priest setting over the world. And that's where the story ends. Now, I would love to analyze that story for you tonight, uh, but Flannery herself would criticize me for that. She'd say, all I could do at best is try and say it worse. But I do want to point out something that flows through that story that is similar to our passage tonight, and that's the fact that it clearly has something to do with bodies. And so there's these girls, Temple 1 and Temple 2, and this idea that's drawn from this passage, Temple of the Holy Ghost. There's this hermaphrodite forcing people to respond to the reality of their body. There is this dream she has of of, uh, the uh, aspirations of martyrdom, which involves a physical end of your life as a witness to Jesus Christ. And then there's this encounter with the Eucharist. Now, instead of analyzing the story for you, I want to read a quote from Flannery O'Connor that she wrote in a letter to a friend in regards to this story. This is what she says. She says, I am almost always astonished at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It's not the soul that will rise, but the body glorified. I've always thought that purity was the most mysterious of the virtues, but it occurs to me to have never entered the human consciousness to conceive of purity if it were not to look forward to the resurrection body, which will be flesh and spirit united in peace the way they were in Christ. And so what she says in this uh, this letter is that she's astonished by two things. One, the emphasis that Christianity puts on the body. And then two, that purity as it's envisioned from a Christian worldview involves the physical body and not the removal from it. That someday purity for us will mean that just like Jesus was fully embodied and yet in complete agreement with his spirit, so also we will be. Okay. Now, Flannery understands something that's easy for us, for the Corinthian church, Uh, for our culture at large to miss. And it's this idea of embodied sexuality. You see, one of the things you have to understand is that the church in Corinth was relatively made up of Gentiles, people who were not of Jewish descent, who were worshiping in pagan temples and pagan religions in the cities of Corinth when they became Christians. And so they are religiously a, well, I can't say a blank slate, but all of their presuppositions before they become Christians are pagan in nature. And this is what you have to understand. In the Roman Empire, under the influence of Greek thought, the body was bad. 
the body was bad. Now, one of these versions of this spun into what was called Gnosticism, which we actually can see the New Testament church in some of the letters of Paul actively fighting to keep out of Christianity. Um, but Gnosticism saw all physical matter as negative, as bad, as evil, as wicked. And so, uh, so for them, everything that was physical was at the very least lesser, if not evil. Physical things were to be avoided, and true religion, faithfulness, and spirituality was to be as least physical as possible. The ideal of the Gnostic Jesus was a Jesus who walked along the sand and never left any footprints, because he wasn't really a man if he was really God. Okay? But there's a predating version of this that goes back all the way to the Platonic understanding, which saw the body not necessarily as bad, but as incredibly limited. And so salvation in the Greek mind was of being delivered from your body. The body is a cage holding back your real self, your soul, your spirit. Uh, and someday, if you attain to it, you'll be free of that. And so they saw the reality of human existence being originally spirit, spiritual, trapped into the physicality of life, and then freed from it if everything went well. Okay? That's what Paul is responding to here. And we can see those understandings in the words of the church of Corinth. Now, I already mentioned to you, this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, but actually the opening words of our passage tonight are Paul quoting the words of the Corinthians, what commentators often call a Corinthian slogan. Now, I wish I had time to demonstrate to you why we know this is the case. I don't, um, but, but I'll just point out a couple of things. This is a common aspect of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, okay? where he opens up a new topic, quotes the opposition, and then responds to it. In fact, in the passage we read tonight, we see it happen twice. Okay? Um, the, there are other reasons we know that this is the case that have to do with structure, that have to do with grammar, and have to do with a few other things. Like I said, we don't have time for that, so you'll have to take my word for it. But look again at verse 13. Um, and hear this, not as the words of Paul trying to make a point, um, but as the words that he's trying to respond to. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by his power. Do you see how those two go hand in hand. And so one on the one side, it's food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. And then he says, no, 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 the body's not for sexuality. And then he responds in like kind, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body, and God will raise the body just as he did Jesus. Do you see how there's a exact response to what the church had said? Okay. It's important to get that. But let's think about the thought line that uh, is occurring here. Now, we know because we've already read this, this isn't really a passage about food. It's a passage about prostitution. But the argument apparently the Corinthian church was using was in the same way that I have a stomach and I need to eat, I get hungry and there's such a thing as food, and it doesn't really matter because at the end it's all going to be thrown out. So also, I have sexual desires, that's also a physical urge, and in the end the body's going to go away anyway, so it's irrelevant to my Christian faith. Okay? That's what they were saying. Food for the body and the body for food. Sexual urges for sexual immorality and sexual immorality for those urges. 
And it doesn't really matter because in the end, all the physical is going away. That's what they're communicating. That's what Paul is responding to. And it's worth mentioning, as ancient as this understanding is, it's surprisingly modern. Okay? It's not uncommon for our culture to say, look, sex is just something your body wants. It's not that big of a deal. Now, personally, personally, I call foul when people say that. Because as much as our culture likes to act like sex is not a big deal, it simultaneously acts like it's the most important deal. And so on one hand, we can say, it's just a thing of the body, it doesn't really matter. And then on the other hand, we say, if I'm denied full autonomous expression of this, then you're making my life relegated to some second-class status. And so they say, sex is no big deal, but it's essential to human life. Interestingly enough, a Christian perspective also has a little bit of a paradox from it, but it's the exact opposite paradox. It says, sex is so important that it can't be toyed with, but it's not essential to human life. And you can pick your paradox. I know which one that I've picked. But getting back to the passage here, effectively what they're saying is, what's the big deal, Paul? It's just something I want to do with my body. Now, how he responds is important because the truth is the church often also thinks in platonic dualism, often thinks in Gnostic thought, often makes much of the soul and little of the body. That's why most people's understanding of heaven, if they haven't really looked at what the Bible has to say, is a disembodied reality, right? Heaven is this place with floating and clouds and ghostly-like characters, okay? And so the body is left over as just being somewhat irrelevant to the Christian life. Unfortunately, the Gnostics, as much as the New Testament authors fought against it, had tremendous influence in the early church, and it's taken hundreds and hundreds of years for us to see what the Bible actually presents. And the truth is, we can't stand with the Gnostics. We can't stand with the Manichaeans who wrote in the days of Augustine that he stood against, who said, creation, all the physical world is bad. The reason we can't is because we've read the book of Genesis. And Genesis says the origin of all these things is a God and that his proclamation over those things even though it is now fallen, even though there's corruption in it now, the original proclamation over those things was it is good. Okay? And so, matter matters to Christians. But more than that, more than that, we have to remember that the story in the book of Genesis of God creating Adam from the dust does not include God carrying a jar full of disembodied souls and then instilling one into this clay body that he's just made. It does say that he breathed into the man and gave him life. He makes him there a living being. And the word there, nephesh, unfortunately, in the King James Version is often translated soul, and it sets us up to have a misunderstanding. The Hebrew word nephesh always refers to a physical person. Always. And soul, to some degree, actually used to carry that meaning, but because of this spirituality, we started to distance, and so now the soul is what really matters, and the body is irrelevant, okay? Now, here's why I believe the Bible is right. Because our actual experience of human life is inherently embodied. You don't know anyone who is disembodied. Right? And the truth is, the way that we talk about 
and think about and use our bodies is not merely as some sort of technology or tool or even property. We view it as person. Okay? In other words, everybody is a somebody and nobody's a nobody. Okay? Listen uh, to the words here of Sharif Gurgis and his co-authors in a book called What is Marriage? Now, Sharif Gurgis and his co-authors, as far as I know, are not Christians. And this book was originally published in a journal uh, referred to as the Harvard Journal of Law and, and Civil Policy. And what they're trying to do is defend a view of marriage known as the conjugal view of marriage. Now, we'll probably come back to this book in weeks to come because it's a fascinating philosophical argument um, that aligns up with how Christianity views these things. But here, I want to focus in on the way that they see sexuality as embodied. This is what they say. But marriage also includes bodily union. This is because your body is an essential part of you, not a vehicle driven by the, quote, real you, your mind, nor a mere costume you must don. If a man ruins your car, he vandalizes your property, but if he slices your leg, he injures you. Since the body is a part of the human person, there is a difference in kind between vandalism and violation, between destruction of property and mutilation of bodies. This point's been developed at length, but we can make it vivid by considering some of its other moral implications. What is peculiarly perverse about torture? That it uses some aspects of a person, their body and effects, against other aspects of his or herself, their wishes, choices, and commitments. Why is rape gravely wicked even when performed on someone in a coma who never finds out and sustains no lasting injuries? It still involves misusing, abusing a person, and not merely using and replacing intact his or her property. Okay. And so there's a difference here that's essential to understand, one that in common sense we generally think in this way. Okay. We, like the authors point out, make a distinction between somebody who keys our car and slices off a limb. One harms your property, the other harms you. Now there's another mistake on the other end we can make, and this is a, a uniquely modern one, okay, that's, uh, that is so materialistic, says, yeah, of course, human beings are bodies, but that's all they are. The world is physical, and that means that every explanation and every ethical understanding stems from just the world as it is. And the truth is, we're just firing synapses. synapses. We're just cause and effect. You're just the sum of your parts, and your parts have urges, and you follow those urges. There's really no true self. You're just a cog in the machine of nature. Okay? And so the Christian view is, is this. You, let's see if I can get this right on the first try. I had it before, before service. You are not your body. Okay? That's the materialistic view that just makes a one-to-one -one comparison. All that, it, all that there is, is you. And anything you think is, is you in significance is really just chemicals and electricity flowing through your brain. On the other hand, we have to affirm your body is you. See the difference there? You are not merely your body but you are clearly, your body is you. It's a part of you, an aspect of you. Not merely, as is pointed out in here, a vehicle or a costume or a cage. It really is you. Now, there's another reason we affirm this as Christians. It's not just because God created 
human beings as embodied beings, but also because God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, became embodied. The incarnation points to the reality that God willingly and fully took on flesh, bodies like ours, with the pros and cons and limitations that go go with that, that the God of the universe, who is inherently by his own nature unnaturally unlimited, or naturally unlimited, took on the limitations that we experience all the time, and so Jesus gets tired, he gets hungry, he experiences all the things we do. And not only that, But when the story finishes, we don't find Jesus' body laying in a tomb and some sort of spiritual manifestation of Jesus. We find a resurrected, physical Jesus who can say to Thomas, Thomas, you want to know if it's me? Put your hands in the scars, the ones where the nails were on the cross. Put your fingers in my side and feel the wound from the spear. And it's that self-same Jesus that ascends to the right hand of the Father. What I'm saying to you is right now, Standing right next to the throne of God is a man in a human body. Not merely a man, God in the flesh. That says something. It says something significant. And as pointed out by Paul here, that same God who raised Jesus bodily will also one day raise us. Okay? And so we have to watch out for this view of heaven that's overly spiritual. Okay. In fact, listen to how Paul puts it in the book of Romans. This is in Romans chapter 8. And this actually, this passage is a great place to think through these four categories of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Because he touches on all four in a handful of verses. But I just want to draw your attention to what he says specifically about our hope as Christians here in verse 23. He says, not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, who are Christians, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is it that we are hoping for and longing for and groaning for eagerly, according to this passage? Not just our adoption as sons, not just the fulfillment of our inheritance in Jesus Christ, but the redemption of of our bodies, because our bodies are us, okay? So, that's what Paul is trying to drill into their heads, that before we can answer what is right or wrong for a Christian to do, we have to recognize that that Christian, by definition, includes his or her body. In fact, he says something that is so much more significant than that there. Look again at chapter 6. Notice what he says again in verse 13. So they say, God will destroy both one and the other. He says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, I think all of us, based on the foundation I just laid, get when it says the body is for the Lord. Effectively, what it's saying here is if salvation involves saving you, it means that your body is part of that. So if you're a Christian, your body is for the Lord. But did you notice what he says next? And the Lord for the body? Do you feel the full weight of that? He says that somehow, significantly, Jesus' whole purpose in coming, the gospel, according to the New Testament, has to do with a relationship between the fact that Jesus and his coming is custom fit for your body. It's profound, and it's easily missed. 
Okay. So, he lays this foundation, and then he makes clear, he makes explicit what's already been implied. Notice verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, we'll see this again, and this is the pattern. This is how we know there's a quotation. He opens the conversation. He makes the quotation. He responds to the quotation, and then he grounds what he just said using this phrase, quote, do you not know? We'll see it again in just a minute. But what does he say? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Now, he's not talking generally about all human beings here. He's talking specifically about those who have placed their faith in Jesus, and he says in that, because of that, because we are now in Christ, because now we are united to Christ, these are the phrases the New Testament uses to talk about these things, that we are members of his body. Now, we've got to do a little bit of clarification here, because for the most part, in modern English, when we use the word members, we think of country clubs, right? Member means membership, or maybe you think of the church in that way. That's not what the word means here. He means physical members, like fingers and toes, okay? And so what he's saying is, don't you realize that when you were grafted into Christ spiritually, that your physical body became a part of Jesus's physical body, Okay? Paul loves this metaphor. He uses it all the time to talk about this community that we call the church. Okay? The way that he talks about this is that because we all have received the Spirit and been saved by Jesus and united to him, we have all become members of the same body, and Christ is the head. Okay? And so we're the same body, one body, many parts. And so we are both diverse in our giftings and callings and united in our destiny and our relationship with God, okay? That's what he's pointing to here, but notice that he makes it explicit, because we could read about that metaphorical body and think that it has nothing to do with our physical bodies, but here he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What I'm saying here is that the Christian witness, the life that we are called to live, okay, what it looks like to follow Jesus is physical in nature, not merely spiritual. It can't be reduced down to opinions or ideologies, okay? It's embodied. If we forget this, then we disincarnate Christianity. Discarnate, that's a better word than disincarnate. We discarnate Christianity. We strip it down to something that is ethereal and spiritual when Jesus was flesh and blood intentionally and purposefully, and that flesh was pierced and that blood was shed, not just merely to bring about our forgiveness, but the redemption of our bodies. So what's the point he wants to make here? Now he finally gets to the issue at hand, and he says, okay, let's talk about prostitution. And so he says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Now, we can read that very clearly and, and see that he's trying to say that prostitution, engaging a relationship with a prostitute, is incongruent with the Christian life. That's pretty evident, but I want you to remember how he's coming about this argument. He's saying that your body is now part of the members of Christ. How can you join that 
to a prostitute's body. And he grounds this in the second most profound statement. We've heard the third most profound. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now we hit the second most profound one. Notice what he says in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. So as we've seen over and over again, and we'll continue to see, the authors of Scripture say if we want to understand the act of sex, the sexual relationship, we have to go to Genesis. But do you see how long of a leap he makes here? In Genesis chapter 2, we have Adam and the first woman, Eve, united in marriage. He says, this is my bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will call her woman because she was taken out of man. And then God speaks and says, therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Paul takes the ideal marriage relationship of full permanency and commitment and he says, do you think it applies less to prostitution? Clearly, according to Paul, there is no such thing as casual sex. Now I want to make a side note here. There is no sex more casual than prostitution. We might think that friends with benefits is more casual, but in prostitution, sexuality has been reduced to a commodity, a good to be exchanged. Okay? So it really is the most casual. And tonight, I don't really want to talk about prostitution. I want to talk about this as being the lowest common denominator of the sexual act. No strings attached. An exchange of goods and services. And Paul says, do you not understand what sex is and how it works and how it was designed? It has to do here simply and totally with embodiment. Now, he says it's incongruent here because the one who's joined himself to a prostitute becomes one body with her. It would be easy, I think, to read this as something mystical, okay? that the sexual act is so significant that it's effectively marriage and irreversible. Okay? I don't actually think that's what Paul is pointing to. He's pointing to the holistic understanding that sex is inherently embodied. That sex is not something outside of you that another person gives you, or even worse, you take from another person, but that it actually has to do with an interaction between real, made-in-the-image-of-God people. And what makes prostitution incongruent with that is because it inherently objectifies the other person. It doesn't treat them as embodied. It reduces them down to parts and their body down to just your technology of happiness. Okay. It doesn't recognize, it doesn't deal with the full personhood of the person on the other side. Now, honestly, I think many of you tonight, where you're seated, would agree with me that many forms of prostitution are clearly exploitative. We recognize that sometimes it's not an exchange between a prostitute and their john of a good or a service, but actually the exchange of a person right? Because there's a pimp, because there's sex trafficking, because there's slavery involved. And so we would go, that's not appropriate, okay? But what Paul says here doesn't have to rely on those things to be exploitative. What he's saying here about prostitution is that there's something inherently wrong with reducing the sexual act down to finances and the exchange of money. And the truth is, 
I can't speak honestly and know every heart in history enough to know if prostitution is something that you regularly engage, engage in or not. But I'm going to assume that for many of us it's not, and so I want to push the envelope here. Consider pornography. Many of us have become conscientious consumers. We care about what we wear and how it got made. We care about what we eat and how those animals were treated. We care about all sorts of things because we recognize that there's a danger of oppression and violence and exploitation in commerce in general. Okay. It is not enough from a Christian perspective to be a conscientious consumer of porn. Once again, I want you to recognize with me tonight that a good deal of the pornography that's out there and available is inherently exploitative. It's taken without permission. It involves force and sort, certain types of compulsion. But the truth is, for a Christian, it doesn't matter if the actors in your pornography are free-range. It doesn't matter if the porn you're consuming is cruelty-free. And once again, let's recognize that some porn is inherently cruel. As much as we would like to eradicate the realities of child pornography or snuff films where somebody is killed in the act of sex for someone else's sexual desire... For the Christian, it's all inherently exploitative because it reduces that person down to an object of self-gratification. Now, there's, there's something that we need to get here that's easy to miss. Sexual desire and the way that we talk about it as human beings slash fallen beings slash over-sexualized modern Americans is always focused on us. And so sometimes we even see marriage or the marriage, uh, the marriage bed as an exchange of my needs for your needs. Okay. But Paul talks about the marriage bed in chapter 7 in a very different way than we would expect. This is what he says in chapter 7, verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, let me unpack the significance for, of that passage for you in two levels. First off, what Paul says here is so tremendously countercultural in his day, you'll probably miss it. It's not that surprising that he says a husband has authority over his wife's body. But it is outright unprecedented, and I mean it. No person before Paul ever articulates on all of the records we have in Greek and Roman culture that a husband's body belongs to his wife. You see, the Roman Empire had a very profound double standard for sexuality. And so the virtue for women was known as univera, which means one man. And so the ideal that women were held up to aspire towards and applauded when they achieved is when they maintained their virginity until marriage, when they were faithful to their husband during marriage, and if he died, remained a single widow for the rest of their life, and those ones were applauded. But the standard for men was very different. They weren't expected uh, to save themselves. Virginity meant nothing um, in the Roman understanding of marriage, uh, their faithfulness was actually uh, not just failed to be expected in marriage, but infidelity was expected and encouraged to the degree that one of the great writers, I'm pretty sure it's Cicero, but I'm not positive, said this. 
he said that for a man, he needs a wife to give him legitimate children. He needs concubines uh, or sex slaves, if you will, to take care of his physical needs. And he needs um, mistresses for romance. That was the ethic of the Roman Empire. And then, of course, not only were they expected to remarry, but eventually, because Romans stopped having babies, required to remarry after their wife died or they divorced. Okay? There was a tremendous double standard. And so Paul rips right through that, and what we see here is a mutuality. The husband's body belongs to the wife. The wife's body belongs to the husband. But I want you to notice the orientation of this in verse 3. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Now this passage is amazingly modern because it talks about both rights and authority, which we love to talk about. Okay? But interestingly enough, the way it's oriented is not in the way that you could wave in front of your spouse and say, You have to give me what you owe me. He speaks instead to the husband and says, you should give. He says to the wife, you should give. It's not take what you're owed. It's not demand what you're owed. The orientation of sexuality in the Bible consistently is give and not take. But what does that mean practically? What does it look like to be giving in sexuality? Now, obviously, in the act of sex, there is selfish sex and there is less selfish sex. But what Paul is envisioning here, when we put both passages together, is more profound than this. Okay. It's this idea of the two becoming one. That sex says with your body what should be said with your entire life. And so if you interact with a prostitute and exchange and merely give money for sex, you're taking, not giving. The only way to rightly and appropriately recognize the embodiment of someone else and fulfill embodied sexuality is to give your whole self along with yourself sexually. Anything short of that reduces people, reduces people to a happiness technology, to a means of self-gratification, to an object. Now, you go, but what if it's consensual? It doesn't matter. The two become one flesh means that sex was designed by God to be a giving of self, a total giving of self. And that means permanent. And it also means exclusively. And here's why. Because if you multiply the, the recipients, you divide the gift. And so here, what's envisioned and what makes prostitution so uh, untenable or so unethical or what makes casual sex so uncasual is that the whole point of sex as it's designed is to physically give yourself to one another in congruence with really giving yourself to another person. Now, two things before we move on in the text. One is, we need to recognize here that romantic desire doesn't necessarily meet that. That saying, I'm fully giving myself to you in this moment is not the same thing as I give myself to you totally, permanently, and completely. 
And the second thing we have to do here is we have to own up to the fact uh, that we, we believe erotic or eros is one thing and know it's actually something else. In most of our talk, and most of our conversations, even in the way that we treat our sexuality, we often reduce erotic desire down to the, to the desire for an orgasm. Now, as much as we treat it that way, we don't really live that way. Most people would choose a partner over no partner, even though no partner can be a much more quick and convenient way to fulfill that. But more importantly, I would suggest to you tonight that an appropriate understanding of Eros is tied into this embodiment, that what you want is to fully have someone who belongs to you. And nothing could more envision that than the sexual act, which is inherently vulnerable, which is inherently intimate. But not only that you desire that someone would belong to you, but you desire that that you would fully belong to them. And that's where Paul puts the front foot forward in 1 Corinthians 7, in giving. And if you're honest with yourself, whatever your sexual history, whatever your current sexual behavior is, that longing is still there. It might be tainted, it might be silenced, it might be distorted. But we're like somebody just shoveling down empty uh, calories and still hungry. What our eros really points to is the desire to belong to and for someone to belong to us. And so that means it's only fulfilled, it's only completed in this. Now, Paul goes on and he says that he who is joined to the Lord, notice here he uses the same words, joined, in union, more on that in a second, becomes one spirit with him, Flee from sexual immorality. Do you hear how strong the phrasing is there? He doesn't say avoid it. He doesn't say keep your distance. He says run from it. Now, clearly the Corinthians need that because if sex is a flaming house, they're inside it, right? And so fleeing is the right verb. But the way he puts it here in the Greek is tremendously strong. And most likely here he's trying to draw our attention to a story that you might know. The story of Joseph, right? Joseph, who in Genesis 38 is constantly tempted by his employer's wife to sleep with her, and she grabs his garment and he quickly slips out of his robe and runs out of the house undressed to avoid it. Flee sexual immorality, he says. He speaks really strongly. Why? Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, it's possible here that Paul is saying that there's something uniquely significant about sex, and because of that power, it's explicitly against the body. But I think you'd agree with me tonight that we can think of other sins against the body, like self-harm or suicide. This word other here is actually not in the text. It's added to help us understand. And the reason is because they're trying to figure out what Paul is trying to say here. And if we just read every sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, it doesn't make any sense. Unless that first statement is once again the words of the Corinthian church. And so they just go, look, sin is something outside you, not something inside you. It's something at the best you do with your body, but not something you do. They keep it at a distance and, or maybe it's something you do to someone else, which I think actually is a modern limitation we always put on the concept of sin. 
We reduce it down to sin is something that you do to someone else. But he says sexual immorality, you sin against your own body. Now this is really important because here's the thing. If the Christian sexual ethic is based on design, then using it wrongly, one, won't do what you want it to do. And two, usually will move in the wrong direction. Okay, so it's not just that it doesn't accomplish it, it actually goes against the grain of how this was designed. He says here that when we sin sexually, we're sinning against ourselves. Here's the thing. A biologist will tell you that during the, uh, during the event of orgasm, that your body secretes a chemical known as oxytocin. Okay? Oxytocin is known as the bonding chemical. Because when it occurs in your brain, it ties things together. In fact, it's the same chemical that a woman secretes while she's nursing a baby, which is why there's such a strong bond between a mother and child. There's actually a physical uh, brain aspect to that. Okay. And the problem is, when we use sexuality loosely and outside of the confines of true eros, of embodied sexuality, of I belong to you, of you belong to me, of Song of Solomon... I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. We put strain on the systems of attachment. Now, once again, I can illustrate this really easily with pornography. Porn addicts have a difficult time relating to real women or real men. Because you can only objectify people for so long until you forget how to personify them. Okay, But in the same way. In the same way, uh, if you read Not That Kind of Woman, the memoir from Lena Dunham, uh, Lena Dunham who, uh, who created the HBO show Girls, which is a show that deals extensively with modern views of sexuality, there's just one occasion in the book where she asks a friend and she goes, do you ever have that experience where you're having sex with somebody and it's like you're floating up above yourself and just watching it happen? What would we call that? That's an out-of-body experience. I would argue that for Lena Dunham, because of the misunderstanding she has in sex, her sex has become disembodied. It's not what it used to be. It now is just merely food for the stomach and stomach for food. Now, I, once again, I don't know your sexual history. I don't want you to feel hopeless, like the path that you've walked, maybe even the one you walked before you knew anything about Jesus, has now held you, uh, you know, distant and captive in a way that that thing can't be restored. But I will tell you that if you bring those things into a marriage, for every knot you tied before you get married, you will have to untie those knots. That, that you have to retrain your body and your mind and your desires for what it was built for. Okay? And so he says we sin against our own body. But that's more significant for a Christian than a non-Christian. Why? What does he say next? Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Now, to be clear here, he's not talking about some sort of pantheistic understanding of humanity that says, don't you know that your part of the divine spark belongs in you? No, he's talking specifically about the fact that those who believe in Jesus receive the presence of his Holy Spirit. And so for us, our bodies are significant because as he points out here, we are now a temple. Now, if you read the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, you will see that sexual sin keeps you out of the tabernacle. How much more significant if you're the tabernacle? 
There's an incongruence here because the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And then he says what is by far the most shocking thing in this passage, and this is where I want to end tonight. He says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Now, effectively, what he says here is, bought people don't buy people, right? Do you see that? And once again, we could take this as a bare minimum sexual ethic that just says, this is incongruent with Christianity, but I want you to hear the words Paul uses. There are many times when the New Testament talks about what God has done in Jesus Christ monetarily. And so, for example, it talks about sin as a debt that is forgiven, removed in Jesus Christ. But another term it uses is this term redemption. And what we should think of when we think of the term redemption in terms of imagery is that you're a slave in the slave market and somebody buys your freedom. And so it's easy to read this passage through that lens. But don't forget the context. What does it mean if he says, don't buy prostitutes and says, you were bought with a price? This is profound. Like I said, this is the most striking statement that Paul makes in the whole passage. He takes the economic exchange of prostitution and uses it for an illustration of what Jesus has done in your life. Now, as a side note, there's an old quotation from the 1940s that's often wrongly attributed to G.K. Chesterton that's pointing to this same thing. It's this. Anyone who rings the door of a brothel is unconsciously looking for God. As we saw earlier, the body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. As we see here when he ties this together, and even when it was talking about sexual unity with a prostitute and using the same unity language with Jesus, there's a relationship here. He connects the dots, and what he says is that your salvation was costly, and so you belong to Jesus. Now, you might be bothered by that image of prostitution, and probably you should be, especially in our self actualized, freedom-oriented age, the idea of you are not your own is not happy news for most of us. But what's significant here is that he doesn't just say you were bought, he says you were bought with a price. And so it's appropriate for us to say what price? And this is what's so profound. Because the message that we've been talking about tonight, the gospel message, is that so your body could be redeemed, so that your restoration with God could be restored, God embodied himself took on flesh, and then freely offered all of himself in the cross in your place. Embodied sexuality only makes sense according to the Bible when you give yourself fully. And that's what God did for us in Jesus Christ. And the thing is, in the same way that prostitution denies that reality, proper use of sexuality points to it. The Bible takes our sexuality and says, as much as it's about our need for other people, it's not good for man to be alone, it's really about our need for God. It connects those. And I want to be clear here, the Bible never makes God a sexual being, which is relatively surprising considering the context it was written in, because every other ancient Near East religion we know of, Babylonian, uh, Canaanite, Mesopotamian, sex was a major part of both the worship of gods and of the gods themselves. And we don't find that in the Bible at all. But he created sexuality, the Bible says, and he created it in the image of God to show us something about himself and about the relationship he desires to have with us. Okay. And so we've touched on so many reasons why sex is significant for a Christian. 
because God made us as embodied beings. And so sex can't be reduced to a desire of the body. It's a full, encompassing aspect of who we are. Because Jesus took on flesh so that he could freely offer it for us. And in that, now we can say with the Song of Songs, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. And that when we rightly use our bodies and engage in sexuality rightly, we affirm the goodness of that and we point to the reality of that. First and foremost for our spouse, but for an entire world as well. Let's pray. God, I think as modern Christians uh, in a culture like ours that's always trying to disembody, it's always trying to reduce things down that, that feels like we're, we're trapped in this physical world when, when really this body is not a cage, it's us. It's a part of us and an essential part of it that God made and has a plan for. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to understand and walk in a full embodied Christian witness that sees our hands of the hand, as the hands of Jesus Christ. I ask that you'd help us to see that at its heart, our desire for sex is the desire to be accepted, to be embraced, to belong completely and fully to another person, and for, for, uh, for us to offer ourselves in that way. And that we would also recognize at its deepest level, Lord, that it personifies and points to, and to some degree even draws us towards the relationship you desire to have with us, the acceptance you offer us in the cross of Christ, the full affirmation of our personhood, and that now there is a God in heaven who we will one day embrace, who will wipe away every tear, who can be encountered and known. I ask that you would help us in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Once again, if you have a question tonight, the number is on the screen. You can feel free to text it in. Why is it that when Jesus was resurrected, his body that he died in was gone upon his resurrection? What about now? I would surely find my friend's decayed body if I dug it up today. Do we not become embodied until the final judgment? Now, there's a couple of questions here, but uh, let's deal with the, with the underlying ones. Um, first, in terms of the narrative, uh, you may remember what the, what the question is pointing to, which is the fact that when the stone is rolled away, we don't find a risen Jesus waiting there. We find an empty tomb. In fact, a really profound empty tomb because he would have been wrapped think of like a mummy. It's a little bit different uh, in the Jewish process, but wrapped very tightly in fabrics, and those fabrics are still there and still look like a body, like a cocoon. They're, they're no longer there. Um, and the, the primary reason that that exists in the narrative is because Jesus's resurrection wasn't witnessed. His resurrected body was, okay? And so the stone is rolled back to show that something happened, not to give front row seats to the happening. That's how the story works, okay? Um, uh, we also see that Jesus' resurrected body doesn't necessarily behave like yours and mine. 
And so you may remember that one of the first appearances, after they find the empty tomb, the disciples lock the doors and they're having a meeting, and then suddenly Jesus is in the room. You may remember when he's walking unrecognizably with two of his own disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then suddenly they realize who he is, and as soon as they realize who he is, he's gone. Okay? Paul points to this in our own resurrection in an important way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, what will the resurrected body be like? And he's actually dealing with those uh, in, for, or in Corinth, once again, who are going, come on, a resurrection? What will that be like? He, the, the question he's answering is relatively sarcastic. But he says, come on, haven't you ever planted a seed? And basically, what he goes on to illustrate is a seed and a plant, physically, very different things. Identity, they are the same, but their bodies aren't identical. And he says, so it will be with the resurrection. So what I'm saying is that our resurrected bodies are no less than who we are, but they're clearly more. And we see the same thing with Jesus. Now, there's one other thing that I want to point out in this question. What about now? I would surely find my friends decayed bodies if I dug it up today. Do we not become embodied until the final judgment? Now, here's the difficulty. The New Testament maintains two separate truths, okay? One, which is being pointed to, is that there's going to be a trumpet call and that the dead in Christ will rise first, right? Uh, and, that, and that we who are left standing will follow. That's what it says in 1 Thessalonians. But at the same time, Paul makes very clear in the book of Philippians that to be absent from the body is to be present from the Lord. Now, there's basically two solutions presented to this. Neither of them are stated in the scriptures, but they fill in the gap in two different ways. One is that there will be some form of current present tense, when you die, the moment you die, disembodied reality with God. The other is often called soul sleep. And this is the idea that you basically won't consciously exist between your death and the resurrection. That it'll be a blink in the eye for you just like it is for anyone else who's still standing, but you won't actually experience it. That you're awaiting resurrection as the dead. Um, now, I'm drawn actually to the first one, and the reason is because in the book of Revelation, if you read it closely, there's an occasion where a bunch of martyrs are just hanging out under the throne of Jesus, waiting to be revenged. They're saying, how long until you avenge our deaths? And he says, just a little longer. That's before the trumpet. That's before the resurrection that's being talked to. Now, the book of Revelation, although I believe it should be interpreted literally, is full of imagery, symbol, and metaphor. Okay? And so, so that's not conclusive to me, but I think it points in that direction. Um, so there's, there's a good place to start. I would encourage you to look at 1 Thessalonians, Philippians, Revelation, I'm going to say that that's in maybe chapter 14, but I'm guessing. Um, let's look at this one. Oh, bummer. Did I just delete the wrong one? Okay. Okay, here we go. Okay. I found that images that I viewed somewhat recently... I have a temptation to fantasize over during sex with my wife. I can now give that temptation the name of disembodied sexuality. Any tips on battling that temptation? We need to be really honest and recognize our context, which is that experiencing pornography in all of its forms is almost entirely unavoidable in the modern world. 
There are definitely ways to protect yourself and ways to be foolish, um, but, but this reality is here, and especially for many of us who became Christians as adults. Like, all of the um, pornography that I first encountered as a child is still in my mental Rolodex, right? Those images don't go away just because Jesus saved me. And so, so the challenge is real. Um, I think one of the things that's really important to combating what we'll call, as, as was called here, disembodied sexuality here, uh, is actually entering back in to the reality of the sexual relationship you're enjoying. The, the battle, if you will, is different for somebody who is in a committed monogamous relationship that has sexual activity and one who is currently in a single and celibate relationship. But the danger, as it's mentioned here in marriage, uh, is that those two can start to overlap and get involved. Um, and what I would say is that if you act in your sexual relationship with this reality that the Bible talks about of, of recognizing the full personhood of your spouse and interacting with that person and seeking to give and to love instead of just receiving, okay? That's part of it. But I'll mention another one, and this is not as comfortable, okay? Sex is vulnerable because the marriage relationship is supposed to be vulnerable. It's supposed to be one of honesty, now, this isn't always possible. Sometimes we don't even know the secrets that we hold because we hold them so deeply. But when the Bible talks about Adam and Eve's relationship in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, as being naked and unashamed, that's an aspiration, that it would be so intimate that there's nothing hidden, no secrets. And the truth is, as much as it terrifies us, without being explicit, you have to involve your spouse in these struggles. It has to be part of the conversation. I heard a man in a men's retreat once stand up and exhort a bunch of men not to do that because it would damage their wives. And I cannot tell you how angry I was at that statement. And the reason is because whether known or not, sin is sin and it does death. But the truth is, like all other addictions, isolation perpetuates sin. And so accountability requires, John chapter 1, bringing our sin into the light. And like I said, that doesn't mean that every detail and every aspect of your sexual sin needs to be exposed to your partner. There is honesty and then there's brutal honesty. But there must be honesty. Okay, let's try this one. Will our bodies be reassembled in the resurrection in a process like the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy in Ezekiel 37? If you're not familiar, Ezekiel 37 is a passage where Ezekiel is brought to this valley and all he sees are just bones everywhere. And God speaks to him and he says, can these dry bones live? And Ezekiel gives the right answer, which is, you know, Lord. And then there's this wind that comes and suddenly flesh to bone and skin to flesh, he sees the whole thing. Now, it's relatively clear that what this is focusing on is not a future resurrection of people, but the tremendous miracle that will be the restoration of the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, okay? Um, but the significance there uh, uh, is, is that, that effectively the encouragement that Ezekiel is given is that God can raise the dead, so he can clearly raise a nation, 
okay? And so there's correlation between these two things. All I will say is what the scriptures say, which is that whatever it is like, it will be instantaneous. Paul uses the phrase twinkling of an eye, and technically, that modern version of twinkle in your eye actually means something different. What he's trying to say is in the blink of an eye. That's closer to what the Greek is saying, okay? It's just instantaneous um, that this resurrection uh, will take place. It's worth mentioning as well that one of the criticisms that a belief in a resurrection often gets, or one of the reasons why many Christians refuse to be cremated instead of buried, is because they're concerned about this possibility of resurrection. Now, I actually think it's probably a pretty compelling case to say, look, Christians have always been buried instead of cremated. cremated cremation is a pagan practice, and it doesn't say the right thing about our hope. You remember Joseph? Uh, he knows someday God's going to bring his people out of Israel. And so what does he do? He says, hey, Egyptians, you're really good at this. Embalm my body. And hey, you, my brothers, when your descendants are delivered, make sure my body goes with you so that I will be buried in the land of Israel. Why? He wants front row seats when Jesus returns. Okay? His burial is an expression of his hope. So I think that's still an appropriate thing for us as Christians to keep in mind. But... Cremation doesn't render the possibility of God's restoration of your body impossible. Let me just point out to you that it's very, very unlikely that the Apostle's Paul, Apostle Paul's body will, is, is existent in anything but soil. Okay? Now, actually, the Jews were pretty smart about this. An ossuary box is a good way to keep bones so that they don't become earth. But many, many, many people become earth. In fact, are you familiar with the first cemetery in Seattle? It was down by the waterfront, and they discovered that the ground was so wet and the weather was so bad, the bodies kept floating to the surface. And so they moved it up here to Volunteer Park, okay? And so those bodies were transplanted, but what happens if you leave a body in a bog? It becomes a bog, okay? That's what happens. But we were talking about the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. I don't know the how, but I do know the who. And so it's not something that we can avoid just because we picked a bad burial plot. All right, let's see what else we got here. What does it look like to actively deal with past sexual brokenness, porn, relationships, etc., instead of just passively leaving it buried or swept under the rug? This particularly for the single man or woman. Um... I think this is a relatively hard question, and one of the reasons I think it's hard is because people's experience with pornography and their own makeup as a human being is, is surprisingly differing and complex. Okay? One of the mistakes we always make as Christians is thinking that we can just come up with a shortcut solution that'll work for everybody. And the truth is, if you've ever tried to deal with something like a porn addiction or your own struggle in these things, you know that's not the case. Okay? Um, but there is a principle that I think is often neglected that I would like to point to. Okay? What we see in the New Testament in terms of a sexual ethic is always involving, or not a sexual ethic, just a Christian ethic, is always involving two parts, put off and put on. Okay? So Paul says in Ephesians to the thief, let him no longer steal, but let him work for a living and then give to those in need. Okay? So there's a negative, stop doing this, and there's a positive. No longer lie to one another, but encourage one another. There's always these two sides. 
One of the missing steps I always find uh, in, in sexuality, and I'm going to speak specifically to men, um, not merely because the problem of porn is less for women, but the experience of porn is less for women, or different for women, I should say. But explicit, ex, uh, specifically to men, it's not enough to stop objectifying women. Paul says in Titus, no, 1 Timothy chapter 4, I think that's right. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that we need to, in the church, treat the older men like fathers, the younger men like brothers, the older women like mothers, and the younger women with, as sisters with all purity. Okay? And so here's the point. In the church, God doesn't want you just to not objectify your brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants you to rightly relate to them. And I think that is an, an incredibly important part. And it can be difficult if you're single because especially if you've been tremendously exposed to porn, every relationship you're in is potentially sexual. And that's why I never had any women as real friends when I was in high school. Because the ones that I spent time with became an option, and then I ruined the relationship and they were gone. And so even before I met my wife, I realized that I just had a trail of dead behind me relationally. Even at the Bible college I was attending, I disgraced myself and mistreated a girl that I was dating and I just said you know what I got to figure out how to just be friends with a woman and so I took a little vow and I just said next semester no romantic relationships let's see if I can just figure out how to relate to women and in some ways it was the best semester of my entire school experience because I really got to know people and I wasn't so sexually charged all the time. It doesn't mean the struggle wasn't there, but the struggle was different. And interestingly enough, I met my wife after that, and I do not suggest that that's why. But I know that my wife is grateful for that period of time preceding it. And so I would encourage you, if you're dealing with these things, you know, you need to have men supporting you in accountability and support that you're open with and sharing with, who you can call when there's temptation, that's part of it. But you also need to figure out how to have a, uh, a family. The, the truth is, if even if God doesn't have a marriage in your destiny as a Christian, you need women and you need men in your life. It's not good for man to be alone. God made them male and female, and even the celibate needs a community with both full representation of men and women. And for some of us, I think when we're dealing with these things, that's a neglected aspect, that we don't learn how to really rightly treat love uh, our, our sisters in Christ. I got to make sure the time's the time because sometimes it's the date. Okay, good. Okay. If some Christians are called to be single, as Paul emphasizes several times, then how should single Christians avoid the draw of lust for all their lives? Okay, now... Um, here, in fact, let's go ahead and look at it. Paul says a couple of times in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 um, that singleness uh, is a way of living the Christian life. And as we'll see in a couple of weeks, that's unique to Christianity. Judaism saw be fruitful and multiply as one of the 613 commandments that all adult males had to fulfill to be righteous. Okay, So the Paul having this view is rather surprising. Um, Mormonism 
marriage is necessary for this kind of interplanetary heavenly design that they see, and so that's, that's essential. Islam uh, has no value for singleness. It's relatively unique in Christianity, and it has to do with the significance of the story the Bible tells, but I want you to come the seventh week, so I'm not going to spoil it. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 7 in particular, Paul encourages on multiple occasions Christians who are single to consider maintaining that singleness. Whether they were widowed or, or earlier married or not, he opens it up as a vocation. And he says something very important in chapter 7. That's 2 Corinthians. Chapter 7. Verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one from a kind and one from the other. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. And so what he says here is, I wish everybody was single like me. That's my preference. I think all should consider it. But in the middle of it, he says, but each has his own gift. Okay? And so Paul points to, as Jesus does, this reality of permanent celibacy, intentional celibacy. Now, when he says here the gift of celibacy, some people believe that means that these people just have the freedom of no sexual distraction whatsoever. And so if you have sexual urges, you clearly are supposed to be married. I would say that's an over-reduction of the way that Paul is using this word. You may have a temporary gift of celibacy, you may have a permanent one, but like all other vocations, the way you recognize it is somewhat circumstantial. Okay? There is an aspect of vocation that you don't choose. You may have a vocation as a son or as a daughter because you were born one, right? Um, but what, what Jesus points out is that this singleness, and Paul points to this too, is intentional in the fact that it's for a purpose, it's not just, I couldn't find anyone. It's not just, I'd rather be alone. Both of those are mistakes. It's instead, for the sake of God's kingdom, single life is more convenient and better for this. Okay? And that's what Paul is talking about. He says that marriage comes with distractions. And he doesn't say that any of those distractions are bad, but it means that your, um, your desires are divided. Uh, and I can tell you this from personal experience, that the choices I make as a pastor and a minister is greatly influenced by my family. I don't necessarily feel bad by it, about, about that, but it's a part of, uh, of being a pastor with a family. Um, and so, so this is what he's talking about here. Now, um, with single Christians avoiding the draw of lust, there's some ways where it overlaps, especially with marriage. And the first thing I want to say uh, is that marriage is never portrayed uh, as being the solve to sexual sin. Okay. And with single people, you don't know that because you haven't experienced it, and so you can assume, well, married people don't struggle with these things. Read your Bible. The Bible is full of mostly married people. There is only one person called to singleness in the entire Old Testament, and that's Jeremiah. The majority of the characters in scriptures, including the majority of sexual sinners, are married sexual sinners. Okay. Um, but some of the ways that we deal with those things are the same, which has to do with this, this dual direction that I mentioned. One is fleeing from sexual immorality, and that involves uh, what Jesus says. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. So clearly, if your iPhone causes you to sin, 
get rid of it. Okay? And on the other hand, this not just put off but put on, you have to pursue Christian community. Singleness is a terrible misnomer. No one is called to the life of aloneness. They're called to differing versions of community. And so you have to find a way. And, and just think, one last thing before we move on to another question. Think about how different the world of the Bible and the modern world is. If you're a single adult, where do you live as a modern American? Probably by yourself. Do you understand that the ancient world, that wasn't a thing? Nobody lived by themselves? You stayed with your family, and when you got married, you moved in with them, and sometimes you'd live with your brother's family. But nobody had their own studio apartment. We've so tremendously privatized and, uh, um, uh, what's the word I want, want, autonomized our lives, individualized our lives, and then we hurt because we have real human, it's not good for man or woman to be alone, needs that aren't being met. And so, so community is a major part of this. Um, uh, just ask a monk. These things aren't easy to fight on your own out in the wilderness because your brain, as C.S. Lewis said, comes with its own harem. Let's see if I've got any more here. Okay. Uh, as far as I can tell, that's all of the questions I've received. Um, I'm going to wait for just one minute. We have time for one more. If somebody has a question that they'd like to, to shoot in really quickly, um, feel free to do so. Uh, and it doesn't have to be dealing directly with the sermon uh, tonight. Um, if, you have, if you have a question in general. Okay. Just in case somebody is feverishly typing right now, I promise I will respond to you personally. But let's go ahead and call it a night. Um, it's just a couple of minutes before nine. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your thoughtful questions. Um, I hope that you will join us uh, for more aspects of this series. Um, let me pray for us and we'll go. Father, in some sense, the, the Q&A of, uh, of this series is just as important as the sermon because we're starting with the foundational truth of your design, but we have to pursue that from our personal context, which is sometimes far off that road with tremendous misunderstanding and very rarely without regret. And I pray, Lord, uh, that we would remember first and foremost tonight that repentance means meeting you where we're at. That yes, it means turning around and even turning away from and turning towards you, but it doesn't mean finding our way back on our own. That the story the Bible tells is of, uh, of a Jesus who leaves the 99 to go looking for the lost one and carry them home. And so we can come to you where we're at tonight, no matter how messy it is, and say, here's the mess that I've made. What would you have me do? 
And that's so encouraging, Lord, that we don't have to clean up or fix up or come with a plan of action or make some sort of a vow or a promise before you'll take us back. Because you didn't ask us to save ourselves to make ourselves worthy. You're asking like you do every day if, you will, if we will allow ourselves to be saved. And so I pray, Lord, that you teach us how to be delivered. And I know at the same time, because that's embodied and because you have invited us into a real relationship that also involves our participation and our hard work. Sanctification involves sweat as much as it involves tears. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep in mind the goal that we're headed towards, which is not just sexual health or being rid of embarrassing sins, but is, but is knowing you fully and as we know you becoming like you. We ask that you just continue this work in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good evening.